0: Today's podcast brought to you by Elders and Reinegard by Zoetis. Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill. Today's guest is the Chief Executive Officer of Cattle Australia, Luke Bowen. Cattle Australia is literally a few months old. Luke Bowen, welcome. And how are the growing pains for Cattle Australia?
1: Yes, good day, Kerry. Uh, well, we're going well. I think it's uh, it's a good story to be telling because probably some of your listeners may not be fully versed with the background to Cattle Australia, but many people would probably be aware of a former organisation called um, Cattle Council Australia, and what that organisation was was made up of the state farmer groups, the state farmer groups who were the members of Cattle Council Australia. And what we've seen through the restructure uh, okay. and the formation of Cattle Australia is an organisation which has a new constitution uh, and bylaws, which has a directly elected board from the three regions around Australia—the NABRAC region, which is the north, the SALRAC region, and also the Western region—seven uh, directors, democratically elected, uh, to represent industry, the levy payers around Australia, uh, represent their interests. So it's a quite a fundamental shift. It's a new—it's a new organisation. It's got plenty more work to do to establish some of the structures that are going to allow it to develop policy and drive advocacy uh, through the work of a new policy advisory council, which will once again be an elected group of people from around uh, 15 regions within Australia, um, and also uh, state farm organisation representatives to be able to provide that policy advice through to the board in order to position Cattle Australia as the most powerful advocacy group uh, in Australia.
0: Cattle Australia, Luke, has a big responsibility, of course, to represent the grass-fed sector. That represents a lot of big, big money. How is Cattle Australia being funded?
1: So, Kerry, it's a membership organisation. So, ultimately, its membership will be the largest funder of the organisation. Currently, there is a number of different sources of income, including a drawdown from the Red Meat Fund. Uh, We also have some service level agreements with RDC corporations and some other sources of income as well. But what we will be doing is putting forward a strong case to our membership, which is growing. Uh, Ultimately, we have an ambition to continue to expand that membership. Uh, Membership is based upon industry members who are cattle producers themselves and different different levels of cattle production. There are also categories of membership which involve associate members who might be people who are involved in the supply chain and the broader cattle industry ecosystem for want of a better description. So we see a great opportunity, one, for producers to become members and ultimately to be paying subscriptions to Cattle Australia because of the work of the organisation to get in front of the issues that are going to affect industry. We have many. Uh, I think they range from government policy and government direction on a number of things through to uh, activists who are trying to do more to question the way we do things in in industry and trying to question the methods and techniques we use of what is a fundamentally incredibly sustainable sector. When you really break it down, the grass-fed cattle industry is something to be celebrated. I mean, it, it fundamentally works on the principles of a renewable system Sunlight, carbon dioxide, photosynthesis, grass, and its natural carbon cycle, which produces some of the best beef in the world, and it is certainly proving itself as an incredibly sustainable sector, and that's a good story to tell.
0: Look, Brian, I guess funding will resolve itself one way or another. I suspect the more important is what you can do for the beef industry, especially for the grass-fed uh, sector. What's the first aim at present of Cattle Australia?
1: Cattle producers who pay levies are the largest levy payers in the uh, levy paying system and one of the roles of Cattle Australia is to see that those levies are being engaged the right way. Ultimately those levies need to be engaged to further uh, the profitability, the sustainability and the prospects of the cattle industry across Australia. And it's not just for current issues that we're dealing with, it's for future generations. So we are there to ensure that the levies that members And industry pay is spent well and widely, so that's through an engagement with Meat and Livestock Australia, and that will be continuing as a focus. Ultimately, industry is also very much of the court within the the regulation, a whole range of things which confront industry on a daily basis. We're seeing quite a bit of change, both in environmental and cultural heritage uh, ways across the country, uh, in trade, market access, and one of the probably the biggest issues that has the capacity to bring an industry into a pretty difficult circumstance biosecurity incursions. And I think it's probably only been the last 18 months that that's really been on the radar of industry. While biosecurity has never been far away, it's probably the awareness of it, and the awareness of it more generally in the Australian community, within governments and industry, has been heightened through the, the fact that we've now got foot and mouth disease and lumpy skin disease moving into our region really essentially just around our borders so these have been some of the things that are front and center for cattle australia and cattle australia working with other groups with government across australia to ensure that we are prepared that is a very high priority
0: see it's uh, fallen off the the mainstream in recent months though hasn't it biosecurity i want to talk about that later but let me ask you when you go to canberra and you meet bureaucrats What do I want to talk to you about? What are the bureaucratic government concerns about the cattle business itself?
1: There's a number of things that are coming towards us which uh, relate to the sustainability industry and the way government policy is moving towards accounting for emissions and a range of other sustainability factors. So there's there's quite a bit of engagement around that. Um, We've certainly had a focus more recently on biosecurity, so there's been a quite intensive focus on biosecurity. And pushing the case that we need to be prepared, uh, we need to be well prepared. And most recently, of course, in the budget that was announced in May it was the ten percent levy. Well, it was termed a levy, dairy, but fundamentally it's a tax. So it's not, as we can see it at the moment, it's not going through the system that um, levies normally go through. The model hasn't been arrived at yet, but it is fundamentally a tax uh, which will be going into consolidated revenue, and this is across a range of commodities. So for the cattle industry, the five dollar existing levy will have another 10%, like a GFP, on top of it. And, and certainly the, fundament, the fundamental issue about that is that uh, levies have a, a very formal structure about how they are they are gathered, how they are collected, uh, the points at which they're collected, who collects them, how they're used, and there's a very formal structure of governance around those existing levies. So what this new tax will be is going into consolidated revenue, so the industry is particularly focused on ensuring that we have a line of sight and this has been made very clear to government about how this tax levy slash tax is going to be used, how it's going to be engaged and what the transparency around it is to ensure that we have a line of sight to what are the most important biosecurity challenges uh, that industry is facing, including, may I say, what is the threat levels from um, the north through our northern northern borders with vector-borne diseases. Um, and lumpy skin is one of those diseases which has certainly heightened people's awareness around the prospect of you know the, the devastating impact should something like that uh, get any closer to Australia. It's a disease that was in Africa for hundreds of years. It's taken about eight years to get from Africa to Indonesia, and it's covered a number of countries along the way through. So it hasn't bounced off too many places so far, so we think there's a high level of uh, diligence required to stay in front of it.
0: But if LSD does come here, there's a pot of money... In the uh, in the bank, so to speak, to help the industry prepare and combat
1: LSD. Well, there's certainly been um, work done in Indonesia um, and also in Timor. Uh, there's a lot more that can be done because we think that the surveillance is important. That we need to know where it is and where it, how it's moving because it is a vector-borne disease, which means that it um, is transferred by insects. There's quite a bit of debate about the probability of it ultimately reaching Australia, but we think that the best approach is to be precautionary and prepare for um, the the likelihood that we could be faced with an incursion. Not to say that we haven't got threats from elsewhere. I think the foot and mouth disease and lumpy skin together really raised the awareness in the Australian public as well, as government, and so we did get a concerted focus. But the risks still remain for foot and mouth disease coming through, for example, unofficial channels, meat products coming into the country, and ultimately ending up in the supply chain or the food, food chain for uh, d- domesticated or farm animals. So there's there's multiple risks that we still face and that we need to be investing everything that we have in it and we need to be investing everything we have in effective programs that industry has a clear line of sight to. And arguably, we need to be increasing that investment and making sure that it's targeted at the right place.
0: So so what are you saying, Luke? The industry is in favour of this extra um, 50 cents?
1: I think the critical point is we can't have a disappearing into consolidated revenue, it's a bit like the fuel excise. When you fill your car with fuel, you pay a, I'm not sure what the latest is, it might be 30 cents a litre, which goes into excise. Now, that is, that is that was originally designed to be used for funding roads and infrastructure. Now, we don't get a clear line of sight to where that excise goes. It goes into consolidated revenue. Uh, this will be the same. So we, as industry, and there's a number of sectors which are very much focused on how we can get one of seat at the table to design how this is going to be engaged uh, and how we can get oversight uh, and a clear line of sight to the most important priorities that need to be addressed uh, through this additional levy.
0: Time for a break from our Beef Central podcast, and I'm talking to Luke Bowen. He's the CEO of Cattle Australia. Breathe easy with Reinegaard, the only single-dose intranasal vaccine for control of IBR in your cattle. Get in control of bovine respiratory disease, that's BRD, before it begins. Just deliver a single intranasal spray of RhinoGuard for rapid IBR control and add a single dose of Bovishield MH14 protection against ammonia. For rapid protection against MH and IBR in your wieners and pre-feedlot cattle, breathe easy with Bovishield and RhinoGuard, available from your local vet today. For over 180 years, Elders has proudly been supporting Australian livestock producers. Elders supports your business across the production cycle with more than 350 livestock agents, access to specialist livestock advice and auction services. Draw on our established relationships to buy and sell commercial and stud livestock across domestic and international markets. Enjoy Del Credere guaranteed payments when you sell with Elders. Livestock funding also available subject to approval. Elders for Australian Agriculture. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Luke Bowen. He's the CEO of Cattle Australia. Let's uh, change topics now. The industry. Do you think the industry, the broader cattle industry, understands fully carbon credits, carbon sequestration, etc. The where, why,
1: and how? Uh, we, we're certainly seeing that it's contributing to sort of valuations on land in certain parts of the country in relation to some methodologies, including um, human-induced regeneration. Uh, there's also, we have to be very careful so that we're not managing for preferred outcomes. Sometimes with a singular focus on on one outcome, you lose focus on some of those production related outcomes that we're looking for, but it certainly continues to be an opportunity. The, the accounting standards that are used certainly for the uh, measurement of emissions from the livestock sector, however, don't really reflect the natural carbon cycle and the operation of the gases in the environment. Um, And in this case, we're talking about methane predominantly from livestock production, which has been happening for uh, billions of years or millions of years. Uh, It's a natural cycle. It is accounted for currently in our measurement as a carbon dioxide equivalent. And so it doesn't truly reflect how it actually operates in the environment. So, this is one of the challenges for industry is that we have the capacity to we need to have a capacity to demonstrate how our natural systems work. These are systems that have been operating for millennia, and explain that methane has a has a life cycle. Uh, and what we do see is um, when it's produced, it eventually decays over ten to ten or so years, uh, and it re-enters the carbon cycle, producing grass and, and continuing to rotate through the system of the carbon cycle. Now, the the difference is that fossil fuels have only Come to pass in the last two or three hundred years, so this is the com- this is driving a lot of the concern, obviously, about um, the carbon emissions. But methane is a very different gas and needs to be treated so um, as part of the natural carbon cycle. So these are some of the discussions that I think uh, need to be had more generally, and with government and also with industry. Um, it's an increasing realization around the world that we are fundamentally working with a natural production system, and it's in, it is in quite good balance, and we need to be Telling that
0: story. I think it'll be more like a fierce debate than a reasonable discussion, but good luck with that. Now, moving on, I've noticed a lot of ads in real publications recently. Seeking young recruits for properties, uh, big stations, smaller properties, is there an employment shortage in the beef industry around Australia? Is the beef industry struggling to attract
1: younger people? Certainly my assessment from travelling around the country and seeing what stock camps look like in a lot of the um, pastoral areas You would certainly be led to believe that it's an industry of choice for young people. Uh, I think we've seen a really incredible uplift in interest in agriculture from the next, the new generation, which probably 20 years ago wasn't the case. It wasn't sexy back then. I think agriculture certainly livestock industries and the cattle industry um, have, there's a sense of, uh, there's a sense of belonging that people get. um, And there's a sense of something which gets people in. Uh, it gets people in the heart. So I think we're seeing a lot of young people coming through the industry and we're seeing quite a few of those stick, stay in the industry. Uh, Some of them are breaking away after a few years and going to university. I think it's a very, very good story about the the opportunity that agriculture is presenting and the livestock sector is presenting. And it's not just about being a ringer or a, um, the sort of the traditional image of uh, what an industry is. We're seeing an industry that's highly technical, uh, developing technology and, Way running the industry is running it requires a multitude of different people who have amazing skills, technical skills, uh, and it goes through the whole supply chain to all the way through from the, the market and the consumer, uh, where that consumer is in Australia overseas, all the way through the finance sector and then out of the paddock. So, I think people are seeing a lot of opportunities with new technology and some pretty exciting parts of the industry that are giving young people a real boost uh, and an eye to the future, their future in agriculture.
0: Yes, I get the impression that, it's as, as you mentioned, it's become a much more sexy occupation than it was 25 years ago. And it's all about communication, of course, and the ability to uh, for outlying stations to have instant contact all over Australia. Now, we're moving on now to um, the live trade out of the north. You were heavily involved in a, in a past life, uh, Luke. Uh, would it be fair to say the industry is struggling at present?
1: Well, I think we've seen, you know, some of the dynamics have, have moved a little bit, you know, in relation to the, there's been some challenges with pandemics in well here in Australia, yes. but also in Indonesia, and we've also seen some, you know, biosecurity uh, issues in Indonesia as well, was our primary market. So there's some of these issues are, are not, we're not alone in not alone in that. But I think if we look at the volumes, uh, we're certainly predicting that volumes are going to be coming back in a live export side of things, um, and there's. A, Certainly, predictions that those levels are going to be increasing prices of these a little bit, and I know that we've come through a period of historically high high prices, um, which has been very much connected to the herd rebuild in Australia and, and coming out of some pretty difficult times. So, I think we'll see certainly the fundamentals are sound. You know, when we look at the northern cattle industry, it was developed. The modern cattle industry was developed as a result of the synergy. It, that exists between northern Australia and Southeast Asia, and particularly Indonesia.
0: Yes,
1: um, and it's a it's a very good story of how they, the two complement each other. Now, that was, of course, in 2011, was completely destroyed It was a decision of government to shut down the live export trade in Indonesia. Yeah, and what that did, what that did, was overnight destroy the trust that had been developed over many generations and some and uh, decades between um Australia and Indonesia. And it destroyed the the fact that, you know, Australia was the sole source of supply for Indonesia. And it forced Indonesia away from being focused on Australia as a sole source of supply. I mean, I remember in twenty eleven there was the permits for cattle into Indonesia was over five hundred thousand and what we saw was immediately those permits that were issued went through the floor. And I can remember every quarter expectantly waiting for the announcement around what the permits would be. It was, and, regu- uh, it was a know,
0: regular wait event, wasn't it? I
1: can't recall those. It was. Well. And yeah. what we saw was, you know, the numbers The numbers are towards 800,000, the difference between what the exports would have been yeah. if there were, hadn't been a decision of the Australian government to shut the trade, and uh, if things had continued as normal. Uh, it's a massive number of cattle that's fundamentally end up in that market. Yeah. And a market which has very strong fundamentals and still has those very strong fundamentals.
0: Yeah, can I ask, um, can I ask know, about the, that, Luke? The, the growth of Indian buffalo meat into the... I guess they put it into the wet market somehow, but will it ever get back to the 700,000 head a year mark again?
1: Well, I think it's, it's certainly possible. There's no doubt about it. I'm a, but it, at the end of the day, uh, I think we cannot get away from the fact that a lot of that trust was broken in 2011, has persisted. And so for a country to go back to being reliant on one source, uh, I think in this particular case, based on experience, is unlikely. But we'll, we'll, I guess time will tell. But we have it playing out also, Kerry. The interesting thing is we have this playing out with this current issue around like the closure of the live sheep trade. Here we have a legitimate industry being closed down, not for scientific reasons or, or facts, but based on ideology uh, and emotion, a decision of government to shut down the trade. Now, this is presents incredible sovereign risk for Australia as well. What sort of messages does this send, as it did in 2011 to our major trading partners that we're prepared to uh, shut things down overnight? Or in this particular case of the sheep trade, it's a slow death. Um, the decision's been made, but it's a slow death. And so you might end up with something... Approaching compensation for an industry at some point in time is maybe one outcome of this current inquiry that's going on. And today, still, the live export class action is still awaiting their payout. So, certainly, it's pretty bracing when we see these decisions being made, whether they be immediate decisions or they're slow burn decisions, which really undermine our sovereign risk I and a, uh, our reputation as international trader.
0: I had a guest on the grill recently who said he could hear or feel the hot breath of Canberra having a close look at the live trade out of the north and the way similar to what they did to the live trade out of sheep out of Western Australia. Do you do you feel so, any movement there?
1: You know, we've had these very strong commitments around the fact that the, the cattle are safe and cattle aren't part of the mix. The reality is in Western Australia, for example, a lot of the shipments of sheep into the Middle East uh, include cattle. So quite a high percentage of them are mixed shipments. So the viability of um, both the cattle and the sheep side of things are interdependent. Uh, out of the north, that's not so much the case, but we we certainly um, have to be concerned. It's happened before, Gary. Yeah. So this happened before. People have a, have have uh, their own experience of this happening, and the trust with government isn't particularly uh, strong. So who's next? If a decision is made upon uh, you know facts, statistics, you know that's one thing, and. It's, Everybody understands why decisions are made, but if they're made based on emotion, that's not good for Australia. It's not good for our trading relationships. It's not good for those people who are trying to manage diverse markets I get some diversity, so we're not stuck with one market and with one, one buyer. We need market diversity. We need that mix, and Australia has been very good at doing that, internationally providing multiple products, uh, in some cases for the same market.
0: Yeah, Luke, one out of left field for you. Is there a glimmer of uh, hope for the northern cattle industry, uh, hope of some substance really, emerging out of the latest trend to use Wagyu bulls over Brahmins? So this is going on, I believe, right across uh, northern Australia. What's, what's your view on that?
1: Look, I think industry are in the best place to be looking at those, those yeah. opportunities quite, quite clearly. I mean, Wagyu has been quite a uh, – it's moved very quickly. I mean, we've seen waves of this historically with um, composite cattle being produced in different parts of the, of the north to try and look at how different markets can be supplied and there's a bit of uh, some market options available to producers. But, look, I think it's just a wonderful example of in- industry innovation and also really looking at how we supply a product to the consumer that the consumer is looking for. Yeah. So you know, I think it, um, it's a good story. And that's, that's the industry being dynamic, it is uh, it? being and innovative and creating and diversity, diversity and a,
0: a different type yeah. of beast and probably a different type of meat, which leads to all sorts of uh, possibilities across the north, especially. And if you and if it's good across the north, it impacts on the south, of course, doesn't it?
1: Well, half the half the nation's cattle are run across the north of yes. Australia, and uh, mm-hmm. and the, the interesting thing about that is most of that country is is rangeland, open range country, which. It's highest and best use is, is cattle grazing and it's really been put to good use. So it's very sustainable. We, I think we have can certainly stand up and say that we do this very well and it's a wonderful synergy that we've got in northern Australia which complements our southern production systems as well and really puts Australia where, where it is and where it deserves to be. Uh, the top of the heap as far as economic performance, environmental credentials and its welfare credentials which really do set... Template for the rest of the world to follow. And uh, I think we're doing a lot, certainly in the live export industry is a good example where, you know, if we were not in those markets, those welfare standards that have been driven through the SCAP system, through the supply chain, would not have had the influence over, uh, you
0: know,
1: animals that uh, come from other countries. And certainly not being in those markets is not going to help uh, the welfare outcomes for most of those places.
0: I had one old bull from Northern Australia tell me the other day that the Wagyu bull experiment could be a game-changer for the Northern industry, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. Luke Bowen, Chief Executive Officer of Cattle Australia. We'll have a very tough gig, I think. Good luck. Thanks for being on the grill for Beef Central.
1: Thanks very much, Kerry. Much appreciated.
0: Thank you for joining me today. If you have a question or topic you'd like discussed on The Weekly Grill, email theweeklygrill at beefcentral.com. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonergan and this is The Weekly Girl brought to you by Elders and Reinegaard by Zoetis.